0: This past week I read a New Yorker essay on the topic of Facebook's mission statement. Turns out that Facebook's mission statement, to which every employee uh, must subscribe, is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. Now I can't repeat in church what the author thought of the fact that this was Facebook's mission statement. But I loved it when the author continued and said, that sounds like a better fit for a church. And it does. I mean, recalling what Lisa called to our attention last week, that Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, over and over again in this passage that we've read. We could say, it is God's mission statement, God's mission statement, to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together in Christ. Or as Paul actually says in our passage, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the plan that we've been talking about. That's the plan Paul's been speaking about. It is the plan that he says we the church are to be living for and witnessing to. These past three Sundays, we've been working through this passage by recognizing Paul's Trinitarian reference to the electing father, especially in verses 1 to 4, the redeeming son, especially in verses 5 through 12, and now the anointing spirit, especially in the last two verses, verses 13 and 14 where we'll focus our attention this afternoon. Actually, the Holy Spirit's presence is assumed throughout this passage, throughout this entire passage, and it helps to understand that if we understand a theological doctrine called the doctrine of appropriation. For instance, uh, in the creed that we recite uh, every Sunday, we refer to the Father as the Creator even though in Colossians 1 Paul says that all things were created through the Son Jesus Christ so actually um, all three persons of the Trinity were involved in creation because Genesis 1 tells us that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and all three are involved in our redemption but what we do is uh, Theologically, is that we appropriate to one of the members of the Trinity um, certain activities in which actually all three persons are involved. I mean, each gets a top billing at one time or another. So so this afternoon, uh, we do focus on the Father's plan before the world was created uh, as it's moved along by the work of the Spirit who is loose in the world right now and how the Spirit works through the redemption, uh, the Son's work of redemption and adoption that Lisa unpacked for us last week and how that's applied in our lives by the work of the Spirit. Now, th- this letter, uh, Ephesians, was probably meant to be circulated among a number of churches in a certain region. Uh, it was probably meant not just for the church in Ephesus. But I do think that Paul has the Ephesian congregation in mind When he writes these two verses, verses 13 and 14, here's why I think that might be the case. Because some people suggest that the pronoun we in verse 12 refers to the first who set their hope in Christ, which would have been the children of Abraham, the Jews, who were looking for the Messiah. And then in verse 13, he switches to the pronoun you, perhaps having in mind the Gentiles Those who, having heard the word of truth and believed in Christ, experienced the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we read about that happened to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon these baptized folks, and they experienced something uh, like what we read about on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then he switches to another pronoun in verse 14, the pronoun our. Now including all of these, Jews and Gentiles, missionaries and converts who are being saved, which is the revelation of the mystery that he's witnessing as he lives. So these Ephesian Christians, they would have been uh, experientially familiar with the Spirit's anointing of their church, as well as other churches in the local region. They've experienced it, as we know from Acts chapter 19. And indeed, the church is God's strategic instrument for literally putting boots on the ground to make the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God a physical reality in this world. And it's the work of the Spirit that makes that possible for us. We're to be a preview of a coming attraction so that people will want to see the movie. We're not just some other human community. We are to be the kind of church that the Acts 19 Ephesians experienced such that if you read that passage you will learn people were awestruck and the name of Jesus was praised. And many of those who then became believers confessed and even disclose their evil practices. So we as Holy Trinity Church ought to be that kind of anticipation of the kingdom of God realities such that people will ask, hey, how do I get in on this? But to be that kind of church, we need to, uh, we need to, we need what Paul is talking about with the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. Now he uses two words um, that uh, make all the difference. He uses the words seal and the word deposit. I mean, first, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians believers that they have been marked with a seal and that that seal is the Holy Spirit. When we Anglican Christians baptize or confirm or ordain a person, we make the sign of the cross on their forehead. And what we're doing is we're demonstrating by an outward action what is really happening, that this person is being sealed with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is doing here with the word seal is he's actually using a very common word that was used in that day and is still in use today, actually. When a king or a prince, uh, some sort of official uh, sent out a written proclamation... Um, how did you know that it was actually from the king or the prince or this official? Well, those who received it needed to be assured that it was official, and the way to do that was to enclose the, uh, wrap the official document with a wax seal impregnated with uh, the official's signet ring. And then these seals were also used uh, for legal documents uh, like those that would prove that you own some property. I mean, we do the same thing today with government documents that require an official seal, right, to establish the authenticity of that document. Granted, um, we don't use globs of wax, uh, thankfully, and the officials don't use their signet ring. But we use a seal to prove authenticity. So the point that Paul is making is that when we receive the seal of the promised spirit, we can be assured that what we believe the gospel of our salvation is the very truth. Human reason, you know, can give us some assurance about the truth of the gospel. That's good. But as John Calvin put it, when referring to these verses that we're considering here, verses 13 and 14, he said the heart's distrust is greater than the mind's blindness. It's harder for the heart to be furnished with assurance than for the mind to be endowed with thought. And then he goes on. The spirit accordingly then serves as a seal to seal up in our hearts those very promises, the certainty of which it has previously been impressed upon our minds, to confirm and establish them. In other words, um, we can come up with some pretty good rational arguments to support our conviction, for instance, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, apologists for the Christian faith do that all the time. But what about those two benefits of Christ that Lisa spoke about last week? How do we support those? You know, our adoption into the triune God's family and the redemption of our lives that has begun but will be complete in the future. Well, I love the way that Calvin went on to talk about that, especially referring to our adoption He said, however deficient or weak faith may be in us, still, because the Spirit of God is for us, the sure guarantee and seal of our adoption, the mark he has engraved can never be erased from their hearts. That's so cool. I mean, uh, let me put Calvin's point this way. Um, When we baptized Casey and Zachary a couple of weeks ago, which was so cool. We baptized them into the life of the triune God and into the family of the church. And when we did that, we also sealed them with the Holy Spirit symbolized by Jordan signing their forehead with oil, a mark that can never be erased from their hearts. Someday in the future they may have some legitimate questions such as uh, the one a Muslim Imam once asked me, you know, if God was in the womb of Mary then who was running the universe? That's a pretty good question. Um, Not bad. I mean I have a good answer for that. He was just expanding his territory but nonetheless we can come up with some really good reasoned answers uh, to deal with those kinds of questions and that's legitimate. But what will authenticate their conviction, Christians' conviction, Casey's and Zachary's, for instance, that they have been adopted into the church family which actually worships that God who waited in the womb of Mary? The seal of the Holy Spirit has been engraved on their hearts. And that same conviction is ours as well because we saw that happen before our very eyes when they were baptized. The other significant word that Paul uses here besides the word seal is deposit, uh, but it's a Greek word that sometimes translated down payment. It was a word that was used in Greek legal circles uh, to refer to the amount of money that a person would pay to someone who would provide services in the future. It was your down payment. Use the same kind of language today. And that down payment would guarantee that the full amount would eventually be paid in the future. So what Paul is getting at is that God has provided us believers with the Holy Spirit as a sign that God will fulfill the commitment that God has made to his people in the future and give them or make them his inheritance. So Paul put it really well in 2 Corinthians 5:5, when he said, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose um, that is uh, sealing us for the day of redemption has given us the spirit as a deposit, as a down payment, guaranteeing what is to come. So like the seal of the spirit that marks God's people for future redemption, future liberation from sin, death, and all of God's enemies, so the down payment of the spirit is a sign that God promises to complete the plan that he destined for us to be part of before the world was created. In other words, God's down payment of the Holy Spirit marks the authenticity of that promise. It will happen. I love it when we we say that in the Eucharist, when we recite the mystery that Christ has not only died and risen, but Christ will come again. And you should say the will with conviction. <laughs> We've been given a down payment. But there's a flip side of this down payment business. Let me illustrate it um, this way. Trebecca and I are headed to uh, Antarctica in February with National Geographic. I've been waiting 30 years for this. It's expensive, and we had to sell a child to do this. <laughs> But yeah, they're expendable. But we had, to, we had to make a down payment, a deposit up front, indicating that, yeah, we'll pay the rest of this when it's due in, in time. But the flip side of that is this Lindblad Expeditions, who's getting our money, is also promising that they, in turn, will fulfill the obligation that our down payment represents. It's not just those who make the down payment who are obligated. But those to whom the down payment is made are obligated to provide the service. And that's going to be the flip side of Ephesians, especially when we begin working through chapters 4, 5, and 6. We who have received the down payment of the Holy Spirit, we have an obligation that we must fulfill. We have an obligation to provide the service. The Holy Spirit is making a new community of Jews and Gentiles. A new community out of African Americans and Asians and Latinx and white Europeans and indigenous peoples, out of Republicans and Democrats and independents. Making a new community so that even though the Spirit is being given to us as a down payment, we are already obligated to live our lives as a preview of a coming retraction, our full redemption, when God reconciles all of us together. We're anointed with the seal and the down payment of the Holy Spirit in order to live out in a thousand different ways a life together that signals that a new world is coming. A world that God has already initiated amidst a landscape littered with all the signs of a fallen world. I mean, go back and revisit sometime Acts 19 when the Holy Spirit came upon this church in Ephesus. People were being healed. Evil spirits were being driven out. Charlatans who had misled people with their lies and their sorcery were confessing. And even the local economy was affected to the point that the life of Paul and other believers was threatened. How many times has the church in the United States really threatened the economy such that our lives are threatened? I, stuff was happening in Ephesus. And though the, through the church that is living out God's plan of liberation and redemption, the spirit is God's powerful presence in and with God's people to bring God's plan to fruition, The future that Christ's death on the cross made possible and a future that the church is to be living now in the present as we look toward the time when as God's special possession, we are finally reclaimed and freed and God gathers all things up together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you notice three times, though, as we've been working through this passage, in verses 6 and 12 and 14, Paul says that all of this is for the praise of God's glory. That's what it's all for. In love, verse 6, in love God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with God's pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one Jesus whom God loves. In verse 12, in Christ we were also chosen in order that we might, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of God's glory. And that now here in verses 13 and 14, Paul states that when we we who believed were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment guaranteeing our inheritance as God's possession, finally redeemed and freed, What will that be for to the praise of God's glory? And let's just dwell on this for a minute as we conclude. Because Paul is emphasizing three times that the plan of the CEO of the universe has been, how it's been unfolding is ultimately all about God's glory. You know, glory is um, the Greek word doxa from from which we get the English word doxology that we sing every Sunday. But it refers, uh, it it does refer to God's light-filled manifestation of God's self, kind of like the three disciples experienced now on the Mount of Transfiguration, which by the way was on the church calendar, the celebration of that last uh, Friday. But I still love the way, again, Calvin's getting a lot of press today, but I still love the way Calvin puts this when he says that glory, this glory denotes in a peculiar manner what shines in the goodness of God. He says, for there is nothing that is more peculiarly God's own or in which God desires more to be glorified than goodness. And he adds that we must eventually become illustrations of this glory, this goodness of God what it means to live to the praise of God's glory is to live as walking and talking illustrations of God's goodness. And that divine goodness has been the thread that's went its way all throughout this passage on which we've dealt for these three weeks. Because from before the foundations of the world to the call of Abraham to the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews in God's family, the church, to the final redemption and freedom of those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, all of this has been done according to the riches of God's grace who destines people purely on the basis of God's pleasure. In other words, the electing Father decides to accomplish this through the redeeming work of the Son and the anointing of the Spirit in a way that makes no sense to a world that insists that your worth is based on your assets, your beauty, your talent, your accomplishments, your family of origin, your zip code, your your profession, uh, your, your mental capability, you and I have been chosen on the basis of absolutely nothing but God's good pleasure to live to the praise of this God of grace's glory. That is really good news. So how are we doing, church? How do we help others to know what Philip Yancey said, there's nothing that you can do that will make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will make God love you less? How are we doing? How do we do better than Facebook to live out God's mission? God's mission statement who gives people the spirit-filled power to build community and bring the world closer together in Christ. And sisters and brothers of Holy Trinity Church, know that we have all that we need to do this. We have all that we need to live as illustrations of such a gracious God we have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit who works in with us that what God has been up to from before the beginning of the world, God will see to the end. And just as we will see as we work our way through Paul's incredible letter in these next few weeks, we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to live as peculiar people of God's goodness in such a way that people ought to be asking, how do I get in on this? And I speak this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.